As Jesus speaks these words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He gives another brushstroke to his portrait of what his disciples look like. What do Jesus' disciples look like? Jesus is painting a picture to answer that very question. Again, the Beatitudes are not the criteria that we must meet in order to be counted as his disciples. It's not a barrier to entry, but rather an evidence that you have entered. An evidence that you've entered into a relationship with Christ is that you begin in some measure to exhibit these characteristics. And so he adds here another brushstroke. And perhaps as we work through the Beatitudes, you're feeling to some degree the complexity of the image that Jesus is giving us. It is complex because no one beatitude can stand alone. It's a complex image. There are many parts to it, and we have to hold all of the beatitudes together, understanding that a disciple of the Lord Jesus will not be only one who is poor in spirit, He won't only be one who mourns his sin, won't only be one who is meek or hungers and thirsts for righteousness, but all of the above, all at the same time, it's a composite image that he gives to us, and it is challenging. There's another angle by which we see the complexity, and that is the development of the argument Jesus gives us. As I've mentioned several times before, the Beatitudes should not be understood as standalone, independent, and unrelated from the other characteristics, but there's something of a logical progression as Jesus gives us these characteristics. And so we're bound to understand them as this composite, intertwined whole, all of them exhorting us to follow after him, that we might show ourselves to be his disciples. And then we come to verse 8 of chapter 5, and we see perhaps a new level of complexity. Maybe this beatitude is the most difficult to understand, at least of those we've considered thus far. It's not immediately obvious what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the pure in heart. It's not a concept that is readily explainable with just one word or one idea, but actually it comprises a number of different ideas. Added to that, the blessing, the reward that Jesus speaks of, seeing God, It's difficult to apprehend, not least because elsewhere in the Bible, we're told no one has done this. John's gospel, the first chapter. John's first epistle, the fourth chapter. No one has ever seen God. And here Jesus is promising that exactly will be your reward if indeed you are his disciple. So how do we reconcile that? apparent tension. In summary, if I can boil down the essence of Jesus' teaching here in this verse, he's saying that blessed is the one who is steadfastly 
holy. Holy, upright before the Lord, a man or a woman of integrity. In all that he does, not just one area of his life, but in a holistic manner, he pursues holiness and does so consistently. That person will flourish and they'll be rewarded by full, complete communion with God. That's the essence of chapter 5, verse 8. And this morning, I want to try and unpack that for you. Try and show you how that is what Jesus is teaching. As has been our manner over the last few weeks, I want to break the verse down into three sections, considering the nature of purity, the blessing of purity, and then the reward of purity, with the desire that we would all strive ever more towards holiness. As we come to understand more fully what Jesus meant when he said, Bless are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. May we find the holiness that God commends us to a life-giving responsibility. May God keep our hearts back this morning from thinking of holiness as a burden. May he not allow us to see the responsibility that we Christians have to live lives of holiness as that which is not life-giving. It is a privilege for us, disciples of Christ, to be pure in heart. And may God give us, in some measure, a glorious understanding of the reward that awaits us when we shall see God. Beginning then with the nature of purity. What is the nature of purity? When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, we might think about the opposite characteristics, unpure, impure, defiled, stained. And when you think about the opposite characteristics, it quickly emerges that what Jesus is speaking about is a call to holiness, an expectation that we, his disciples, would live uprightly before God following in a path of obedience towards God's commands. It's not a unique teaching. It is throughout the Bible. We find from beginning to end, God's expectation of his people is always that they would be holy as he is holy. The idea being set apart, distinct, sanctified. Unlike the world around us, we would be different in our behavior. As common as the exhortation is in Scripture to be holy, I think it is largely misunderstood by Christians today, at least with respect to the effort that is required on our part and the extent to which that responsibility goes. The effort and the extent of holiness is largely underestimated. To be holy requires great effort. When God saved you, he gave you a new heart. 
The Bible teaches we're part of this new covenant now with new hearts of flesh, no longer hearts of stone. Prior to your salvation, you had no desire for holiness, nor were you able to take the least step toward holiness. And now the wonderful reality of the new covenant is that your new heart is one that is in tune with God's character. You desire holiness. If you're a Christian, there is an impulse in you, however faint it may be, a desire to be like God in His holiness. And what is more, New Covenant realities teach us we have the ability to take a step towards that holiness. We have an ability in our life, day after day, to be walking toward the holiness that God demands. We're now willing, able, and desiring. What many Christians don't understand is that that does not do away with the responsibility to strive. We are desiring of God's holiness and able to live holy lives, but we still have a responsibility to strive after it. Somewhere along the way, the church seems to have embraced this understanding, which is not biblical, that holiness will just naturally come. I'll just live my life however I want, and I will be rendered holy in and of myself along the way. And the Bible upholds what we refer to as the doctrine of perseverance. By contrast to that false notion of how holiness comes about in one's life, the Bible teaches that we are to strive to be obedient in our walk. And that striving is to be intense. I'll often ask people what kind of fight there is against sin in their life. As a measure of their spiritual maturity, not so much what sin is there, but what fight against that sin is there. Is there an ongoing, determined fight against sin in your life and toward holiness? That is what the Lord God expects of us. The mere desire and the mere ability must not be equated with the accomplishment of holiness. But we're to strive. There's great effort required. In addition, holiness is often misunderstood as it relates to the extent, the extent to which we are to be holy. In large measure, I think it comes about through our neglect of Scripture. All of those wonderful chapters in the Old Testament that give one law after another to God's people in the Old Testament days, Israel, must not be neglected by us, not that we're bound by those laws, but if nothing else, the extent of those requirements that He placed upon Israel show us something of His character. They show us something of the extent to which he expects his people to pursue holiness. And so as we have neglected large portions of his word, slowly but surely we have lost a vision for how all-encompassing our holiness is to be. Typically, Christians today boil down the notion of holiness and apply it to just one or two pertinent areas of their life, where they understand there is some ongoing sin, 
Christians all too often today think of holiness as an exhortation to refrain from gross sin, gross misconduct. If you're not pursuing sin in an outright, deliberate manner, the task has been accomplished. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. Certainly, there should be no outward, ongoing, deliberate, high-handed pursuit of sin in the Christian's life. But more than that, holiness is to pervade every aspect of our being. God calls us to holiness that floods every aspect of our lives. Our marriages are to be holy, set apart, distinct from the world. If you're a Christian here today, your marriage should look different to a marriage that is not under the domain of Christ. Your friendships should be holy. The friends you keep, the conversations you have, the times you enjoy should not look like the friendships of the world. Your work should be holy. Your pursuit of labor and a paycheck should not look the same as someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. Your leisure, your rest, your thoughts, the meditations of your heart in the quiet hours, every single part of your being should come under God's desire for holiness in your life. There is to be an intense effort and it should be extensive. Now, more than that, Jesus qualifies, blessed are the pure, the upright, the holy, in heart. As if the challenge were not difficult enough, Jesus raises the bar with this qualifier. It is the only time in all of the New Testament that purity is spoken of as referring to purity in heart. So what does Jesus mean by adding these two small words? Well, in Jesus' day, the heart would have been understood as referring to Mission control, the seat of all that a man is. We tend to think of the heart as the seat of our emotions. In Jesus' day, the heart would have been the seat of our emotions, our intellect, and our will. The seat of all that a man is. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about a deep-seated holiness That is one that is not merely external. He's not allowing us to practice a holiness that is superficial. A holiness that is only rendered on the surface and in public. But rather a holiness that begins and emanates from the very seat of a person's being. In this way, we might say that Jesus brings into view the notion of integrity. Blessed are those who walk with integrity, who say what they think, who speak what they believe, whose words do not betray something other than what is going on in their hearts. This was, in a sense, the battle that Jesus was fighting with the Pharisees. Jesus kept speaking about them, showing their lack of integrity. 
In this gospel, Matthew's gospel in chapter 15, Jesus quotes from Isaiah speaking about the Pharisees and he says, these people are honoring me with their lips and yet their hearts are far from me. Jesus looked into their hearts and he could see that they lacked integrity. Their perceived holiness was only inch deep. And so, Jesus is raising the bar as he does not allow the holiness that we might practice to be anything other than genuine, seated in the heart. Again, the challenge is self-evident. This is to be true of us in every walk of our lives. We are to be those who say what we mean and to not go back on our word. Just a few verses on from here, Jesus will say, Christians need not be those who take an oath. Christians shouldn't have to swear by anything, Jesus says. Their yes should mean yes. Their no should mean no. They're people of integrity, uprightness. They speak what is in their heart and they don't go back on their word. And we, perhaps more than anyone, feel how difficult it is to live in this way. I say that because every Sunday we come together and we submit our hearts to a standard. Every Sunday we come together, we delight in the grace of the gospel, we rehearse the truths of our salvation, but at the same time, part of what happens as we come together as God's people is that we submit to a clear and an objective standard. We don't get to define the rules by which we live. We don't get to say what the standard might be for our conduct in the world. But every single Sunday, we put ourselves under this book and say the standard is clear. And I trust that when we do that, your hearts are aligned with your lips. When you confess that God's law is good. In that moment, we're people of integrity. Our lips are proclaiming what our hearts believe, that this is good. And then maybe, just a few hours later, you're now practicing something different from what you have just confessed. Maybe one day later, Monday morning, the alarm clock sounds and the routine begins again and you're a different person to the one that you were on Sunday. And the week goes on and the message and the time together with, with God's people starts to fade in your mind. And by Friday, it could no longer be said of you that you're walking with integrity. Because your heart believes one thing, but your hands, your feet, and your lips are doing something altogether different. And so you see the challenge. See, the challenge of living as one who is pure in heart. One who is walking with integrity. And you can play out that difficulty over many, many years. Jesus expects that his disciples will be pure in heart long after he is gone. And notice he gives this teaching independent of any circumstances. 
Jesus doesn't let you off from this teaching when the going gets tough, when the trials come. He expects that his disciples will steadfastly be pursuing holiness from the heart in all of their life. And so rightly considered, the question arises, how might we be pure in heart? If you can see the nature of this purity and just how lofty an aspiration it truly is, how might we be those who are pure in heart? Well, the answer has to begin with gospel, as it does with every single beatitude. I trust that as we're working through these statements from Christ, you're beginning to realize every single one of them is unlocked by the gospel. You can't really truly get into any one of these teachings apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe by God's grace to some measure you might display some kind of purity in heart for a time or at a superficial level. But to demonstrate this is who you are, to demonstrate that this is one of your defining characteristics, that people would look at you and say, this man is a man of integrity, the only possible solution has to begin with the gospel. That is the broader context. Jesus is calling people first and foremost to follow him. Before you submit to his ethic, you must follow him And as we think about this teaching in particular, we see just how glorious is the gospel of our salvation. You see, when Jesus says, blessed is the pure in heart, this is not without theological precedent. This morning, as we began the service, we read from Psalm 24. The psalmist asked the question, who can ascend the holy mountain? Psalm 15, the same question is asked, who can ascend the holy mountain? You'll understand and remember that the holy mountain in the Old Testament times was understood to be the dwelling place of God. And so the question that the psalmist is asking, who can see God? Who can ascend to his dwelling place? Who can get up there? And in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 24, the psalmist tells us it's the man of integrity. It's the man that doesn't say one thing in his heart and declare another thing with his lips. The man of uprightness is the one who is permitted to ascend the mountain. And therein lies the problem. Culturally, in Jesus' day, there would have been an understanding that the God's would not come to you. They wouldn't defile themselves. They wouldn't come down from their dwelling place. In the Greco-Roman world, the understanding was that all deities dwelt on high and we had to strain to get to them. And there was an understanding that we could not possibly get to their dwelling place because of our sin. C.S. Lewis writes a book about this very idea, the title of the book, Till We Have Faces. And the title is taken from one line right towards the end of the book where the the protagonist, the main character, finally realizes why the gods have not been showing themselves to her. 
She's been frustrated that the gods won't reveal themselves to her. And then she says, why should they speak with us face to face until we have faces? Why should they give us any time? Why should they ever descend the mountain until we start being people of integrity? That is the context into which Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And the broader context, as you know, is one wherein our God came down the mountain. The God whom we serve is not a God who waited for us to live lives of integrity before he would come face to face with us. The God whom we serve did not wait for us to walk uprightly. Before he sought us. He did not wait for us to be the man of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. Before he said, I am coming after you in love so as to have a relationship with you. More than that, not only did our God descend the mountain in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he marched all the way to the cross so as to finally and ultimately reconcile the problem of our sin. He came after us in love. He sent his son to die on our behalf so that the sins are now paid for, done away with. We're clothed in his righteousness. We can have a relationship with God. And as we've already thought about this morning, start to pursue real and genuine holiness. As a Christian this morning, You are able to pursue genuine purity in heart. And it is only because of the gospel. It is only because of the gospel that you may be called one who is pure in heart. Now, beyond that, very practically, how do we take steps in that direction? How can we not be one of those Christians that is content in their sin, who is not pursuing holiness? How can we ensure week by week, month by month, year after year, we are growing in purity in our hearts? Well, the gospel instructs us further. Remember, it was only a few weeks ago that we were looking at verses 1 and 2 of this very chapter. And we saw from a wide-angle perspective just how glorious it is that Jesus ascended the mountain. He went up onto the mountain, not incidental, not an incidental detail. But Jesus is stepping into that theological trajectory that began in Genesis 1. Adam and Eve descended the mountain because of their sin, and Jesus is bringing his disciples up the mountains, not as a final fulfillment of redemptive history, but as a large signpost that Jesus will be the one to get you to the last day. You put your faith in him and then you follow his teaching. So how is it that you grow in your purity in heart simply day after day after day, come back to the words of Christ and submit your heart to him, knowing that he will be faithful by his grace to lead you in holiness? Very practically, 
I would say, to grow in purity in heart, you have to be one who is immersed in the life of the local church. Now, this is not in the text. I'm not saying this is hidden somewhere in the verse and you can't see it. This is my practical encouragement to you. Working itself out from the theology of what it means to be pure in heart. Jesus expects that his disciples would be people of integrity. Grounded in faith, beginning with the gospel, not in your own strength, by God's grace, how then do you walk with integrity? God has gifted us, the local church. It's his design for our good. As you immerse yourself in the local church, certain things start to happen. As you refuse to be one who is on the periphery, but is immersed in the life of this local church, invariably what will happen over time is that levels of accountability will start to emerge in your life. As you're determined to be here with us on a Sunday morning, as you come out on a Sunday evening, as you are involved in the activities of this church during the week, you can't help but share your life with others. And as you do that, levels of accountability will start to emerge. Now, you can be very intentional and seek after them. I'd encourage you to do so. But I truly believe as you immerse yourself in the life of the church, In a very organic way, accountability will start to emerge in your life that will not allow you to be someone who lacks integrity. As you share your life with others Monday through Sunday, there will be accountability woven into your schedule that does not allow you to be one person on a Sunday morning and a different person on a Wednesday evening. It just won't be allowed because there are too many brothers and sisters in your life, speaking into your life, praying for you and encouraging you. It is God's design for us. It is a mechanism that at least in part brings about accountability so that he would render his people those who are genuinely pure in heart. So my encouragement this morning First and foremost, set your eyes on Jesus for salvation. If you're here amongst us and have never confessed your sins to him, ask for forgiveness and declare that he's your savior. Come to Christ this morning. And thereafter, I want to encourage you to be invested. To be wholly invested to make this church an absolute priority in your life. For the benefit of others, there are many who are waiting to be blessed by you. But also for your own benefit, for your own integrity. In order to be pure in heart, look unto Christ for his saving grace and live your lives amongst one another. Now that's the nature of the purity 
of which Jesus speaks. What's the blessing? By way of reminder, this first opening word of all of the Beatitudes speaks not exclusively of a future-oriented promise, but also has built into it an immediate flourishing. Every beatitude carries with it a twofold blessing, both in the here and now and in the future. And in every case, Jesus makes plain what is the future-orientated reward, but it's up to us to think through what is the immediate blessing. He doesn't give it to us. We need to think through theologically how is it that somebody who is pure in heart flourishes today and tomorrow and the day after until Christ returns. Where is the flourishing to be had? I would say in this case, it is multi, multifaceted. Those who are pure in heart, we might observe, enjoy a conscience that is at rest. Those who lack integrity are plagued by their conscience. They speak that which they don't believe. They're one person on one day, they're a different person on a different day. With one group of people they behave one way, and with another they behave differently. Their conscience will plague them. And if you persist, you'll sear your conscience. One of the blessings that comes out of being pure in heart, surely, is that your conscience is at rest. That's a great blessing. Another blessing is the reputation that you will enjoy in the community. You'll be someone that others look at and say, I know that I can trust him. I'm not second-guessing his words. I'm not sure whether he's being fully honest with me. I know I can take him at his word. Over many weeks and months and years, you've shown yourself to others to be one who is pure in heart, and you enjoy the reputation that goes with that. And closely followed, one of the blessings that comes from being pure in heart surely is a steadfast witness. You give and and proclaim a steadfast witness concerning the gospel. You're not robbing Christ of his glory by lacking integrity, but as people look to you, they draw conclusions about Christ and they're drawing good conclusions because they understand that you are someone who is pure, steadfast in holiness. All of those I would count amongst the flourishing that comes when you're pure in heart. But I think what Jesus has in mind here, especially in light of the future reward, what Jesus has in mind here, very simply, is communion with God. There is a flourishing that comes a flourishing that is found in our communion with God. When you're not living outside of God's will, but you're steadfastly walking in accordance with His will, you enjoy communion with Him. You enjoy it first and foremost through His Word, 
and you enjoy it in prayer. And we know this is a biblical principle for those that have put their faith in Christ. James teaches us those who draw near to God, he will draw near to them. He comes close to those that seek to honor him with their lives. There is a closeness that you as a Christian get to enjoy now with God, communion with him. And the wonderful, wonderful design that God has given to us is this self-perpetuating routine where we draw close to him through his word and the word then instructs our feet and so we walk with more integrity and through that we draw closer to him. And as we walk in utmost integrity, with the utmost integrity, we draw closer to him through his word and then the word further instructs us and therefore we walk more upright and enjoy more communion with him. There is this wonderful, never-ending cycle that God has designed as we put His Word at the center of our life and desire to honor Him in holiness. And so we can be very, very thankful that as we desire to live out lives that are genuinely pure in our hearts, honoring towards God, we are those that enjoy the utmost, closest communion with God in this life. That is the blessing that comes from a pure heart. And it is followed by a reward. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the future-oriented blessing. There's an immediate flourishing, an immediate communion with God to be enjoyed now, but it is not the final expression of that communion. We all as Christians can enjoy some degree of communion with God now, even while the sinful flesh remains, and yet we understand there is a day coming when we will enjoy fullness of communion with Him. We will enjoy fullness of communion with Him when Christ returns. He brings about His kingdom and then He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and there we will dwell with God forever. Isaiah 61 And Isaiah 25 and Revelation 22, all of these chapters portray a time when we will have our dwelling place with God. We won't need a light because God will be our light. And there'll be a fullness of communion that we enjoy in that day with God. And so Christ gives us one more brushstroke of the portrait of what it means to be a disciple. It should drive us ever more to the gospel. It has to remain as our foundation, faith in Christ and the grace that he alone can supply is the means by which we begin our path of holiness. And then day after day, we keep walking out that path, understanding it to be a great privilege. By no means is God's call on our life towards holiness ever intended to be a burden. It is intended to give us life. We're intended to flourish as we pursue such holiness. As we do so, we flourish. We flourish because we enjoy communion with Him. And all the while, we look forward to that great day. 
when we will enjoy fullness of communion with God. May we be a church who is found pure in heart. Collectively, may we be pure in heart. Collectively, may we encourage one another unto holiness. May we be a church that enjoys communion with God. And may we wait with great anticipation for the day when we will enjoy full communion, when we will see God. Let's pray to close. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus' words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. By no means is it an easy teaching to consider. Jesus is explaining his disciples will be holy through and through, sanctified at a heart level. Jesus' disciples will be people of integrity not duplicitous, not lying with their lips, steadfast, consistent, living out lives of transparency that evidence your holiness in us. Father, drive our hearts back to the gospel as the necessary starting place by which we might obey. It's the gospel alone that enables us to be pure in heart. You're not a God that refused to have any dealings with us when we were deceitful and wicked. You're not a God that stayed far off. You're a God that descended the mountain As the psalmist cried out, who can ascend the holy hill? You came down and you bled and died for us. You clothed us in the righteousness of your Son and now we have hearts that desire your holiness and you have given us an ability to be pure in heart. Father, we pray that we would be responsible pursue purity in our hearts, to take every thought captive, to fight the sinful inclinations of our flesh, to choose a path of holiness as a church every day. I pray for this church and ask that it would be all that you intend it to be. Father, that this church would function to provide accountability that we also need through our relationships, our friendships, through the leadership of this church. May there be accountability that doesn't allow us to be anything other than people of the utmost integrity. May we know the flourishing that comes from it, a flourishing of communion with you, a flourishing of a conscience that is at rest, 
of a reputation and a faithful witness amongst others, but above all things, communion with you. And Father, we pray that you'd impress deep into our hearts the glorious reward that comes to your disciples. We shall see God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.